Hi and welcome to part two of this Redcast on cycling with Les Doherty from Pedal for Progress, me Stuart McGill and my comrade Alex Gordon. We're going to kick off with uh, the continuation of our discussion about the Tour de France and its connection with the Dreyfus Affair. So right now over to Alex to continue this interesting tale. The Dreyfus Affair is uh, involved in the founding of the Tour de France. Uh, and basically, um, the Tour de France uh, is founded, as we said, in 1903. Uh, it goes back to uh, two rival sports newspapers in France at the time. Uh, there was Le Vélo, the bicycle, which is the first and largest sports newspaper in France, uh, with a circulation of around about 80,000 copies a day. And the rival to Le Vélo was Lotto, the car, which had been set up by journalists um, and business people, including um, the Edouard Michelin, the founder of Michelin, Michelin Tires, um, and numerous other um, car manufacturers. So the rival paper, the Auto, emerged following disagreements over the Dreyfus affair. Um, and so... And people who aren't aware of the Dreyfus affair, uh, the Dreyfus, look it up, basically. Um, uh, Dreyfus was uh, a French, Alfred Dreyfus was a French army officer who was convicted on um, false information of being a spy for Germany um, and selling military secrets to the Germans. Uh, but the whole Dreyfus affair was a thinly veiled uh metaphor or uh, um, a, a thinly veiled uh, 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 stage on which to play out um, the profound anti-Semitism in France. So on the one hand, the Catholic Church, which was deeply anti-Semitic, uh, saw Dreyfus as being, because Dreyfus was Jewish, uh, saw Dreyfus as being uh, the man uh, to demonize, uh, on the other hand, progressives in France, um, notably secularists, defended Dreyfus, uh, and this polarised French society uh, at the end of uh, uh, during this period. So the emergence of these two newspapers mirrored the divisions in French society, and uh, in particular, the new newspaper, um, the Auto, appointed Henri de Grange as uh, the editor. And he was uh, a prominent cyclist. Um, and uh, this comes back with the emergence of the tour in 1903. Uh, so Degrange remembers the Dreyfus affair, which had happened a few years earlier. Um, and this launched the, uh, launched really the, the Tour de France. And in particular, gave sponsorship and backers to the original race. And it was also supported by the famous French writer, the most famous writer of his day, Emile Zola, uh, whose open letter, Jacques, uh, was the famous letter printed uh, in, in the French press, which led to Dreyfus's acquittal um, and established uh, effectively that he was uh, an innocent man. He'd been victimized by the prejudice uh, of the society uh, in which he found himself. So the founding of the tour is completely located in that battle in French politics and French society 
in the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, between reaction uh, personified in the church and uh, progressivism uh, personified in uh, the popular classes, the working class movement, uh, secularism, um, and uh, that is a very important uh, thing to remember when you're watching the uh, carnival uh, unfold on TV, uh, that its origins lie uh, in that polarising debate in uh, late 19th, early 20th century uh, French politics. Did I cover that enough for you there, Stu? Outstanding <laughs> <laughs> answer, Les. Well done, mate. <laughs> um, I, I, as as uh, Alec was um, uh, uh, just reminding me about all of that, um, it, 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 I was it, it kind of um, it, it kind of got, um, it, it goes to show, doesn't it? That the kind of like that that you can have these moments in history, in you know, in, in, in politics or economics or whatever it might be, that can actually you know create the conditions for. For something like this and that kind of like the auto being the new kids on the block wanting them to actually you know elbow the others out of the way for them to be the actual dominant kind of voice it wasn't to do necessarily with with kind of like encouraging people to ride their bikes people that were doing that anyhow in french society it was about reading their newspaper wasn't it and about you know and, and the battle for ideas and of course commercialism taking over what at one point was a nice noble aspiration and recreation. Alex, is it true that for a long time group cycling, Peloton, was actually banned in the UK? Uh, well, it's a little bit more sinister than that. I think um, cycling in general had a very dubious legal existence in the late 19th century. It wasn't just group cycling. Um, it, and, and the questions of why that was are quite interesting. Um, perhaps we can come back to that in a minute. But by the 1890s, the uh, National Cyclists Union, uh, which, let it be said, was uh, an, an attempt to control cycling rather than a, uh, a ground-up organisation of cyclists, the National Cyclists Union banned racing on UK public roads. Uh, and they, the reason they gave for that was uh, a perhaps justified fear that there was going to be a ban not just on cycle racing but on all cycling on public roads and the legal position of cyclists was um, very very tenuous there's a, a historian of cycling called Bernard Thompson um, who's written that events organized by clubs in the 1880s although taking place on quiet country roads were constantly interrupted by the police often and this is this is a quote often horse-mounted police charged at racers and threw sticks into their wheels. So um, the, the, the position of cyclists was really uh, not clear uh, in terms of whether they had a legal right uh, to even take cy cycles out, bicycles out on public roads, never mind engage in group sports such as uh, peloton uh, group racing. And that, that conflict kind of developed because as bicycles became, uh, well, the, the um, bicycles became better and uh, cheaper and uh, cycling became more popular, uh, the, 
the NCU, the National Cyclist Union, uh, were attempting to get cycle racing moved into sort of private close tracks, um, what we call velodromes these days, but there weren't very many around then, and there aren't not very many, not very many around now either. Um, so there was a real attempt to just get cycles off the road completely. And um, in an attempt to get around this, a cyclist started sort of having uh, subversive racing. You could, I think you could call it, uh, where effectively they were starting at intervals, as you would in a time trial, uh, taking a, a minute for, between each uh, rider departing. They'd be racing against the clock rather than in a group or against each other. Um, and in fact, in some cases, they were banned from meeting up on the road uh, and racing against each other. They, they'd also take precautions which seem quite extraordinary to us nowadays. Uh, you know, when we see um, the legendary middle-aged men in Lycra um, out there resplendent in uh, day-glow uh, cycling gear, they, they wore black in order to make themselves look less conspicuous. So you've got these, uh, you know, these riders uh, meeting up out in the countryside in secret at the crack of dawn, just as day, just as day is breaking, all dressed in black, going off on their own on pretty poor roads, it must be said, um, on these individual time trials. Uh, and they'd always carry a bell with them, but they weren't allowed to wear numbers so that they could uh, presumably um, deny that they were part of an organised race. Um, and indeed, the cycling press, which existed at that time, was asked not to give any details about where the race was taking place. Um, and indeed, letters to competitors in these time trial races were headed private and confidential up until the 1960s. This had become such a, such a tradition uh, that this uh, dubious legal background to cycling should have existed for so long in Britain and that it's not really known about, I think, um, very much these days. What happened sometime around 1947? I got some date in my head, like 1947. Something peculiar went on then. So you've got the development then, well, you've got the development in the, in the 1890s of individual time trialing, uh, which it becomes the, it becomes the British uh, version of cycle racing uh, uh, for the reasons that we've just discussed. Um, but by the, um, by the, you know, by the 20th century, obviously with the advent of uh, the Tour de France and other organized races in continental Europe, um, team cycling and team racing uh, is becoming extremely popular. Um, British cyclists are missing out on this to a great extent uh, because of the lack of tradition uh, for it. Uh, in in Britain, and so there's an attempt uh, to organise a uh, mass road race um, in the face of this ban from the National Cyclists Union, uh, and this is organised. Well, it, eventually it turns into a split, as all great um, political controversies do. Mm -hmm. um, so during the Second World War. Um, an organization called the British League of Racing Cyclists uh, is formed and they organize open, an open road race from Llangollen uh, in 
mid Wales to Wolverhampton, which is flagrantly in breach of the rules of the National Cyclists Union. And the NCU banned everyone who took part in it or who organised it um, and uh, insisted that other cycling organisations did the same. So the confrontation between mass race cycling and individual time trial cycling was emerging really by the 1940s. And in 1947, that takes a particularly uh, interesting form in that there was a road race organised from Paris to London. And the National Cyclists Union, their ban on road racing, uh, peloton road racing, mass team road racing, meant that the, the most important stage, the final stage, from Folkestone to London, uh, had to be turned into a time trial. Um, but uh, there was a, a controversy over this, and indeed, um, in the end, the newspaper that was sponsoring the race, the News Chronicle, uh, refused to back a race uh, that it said it couldn't report was happening. Um, and they eventually reached a compromise with the NCU. Uh, and eventually a time trial stage was held from Folkestone to London to finish the race. But that's 1947, you know, two years after uh, the end of the Second World War. And in 1951, uh, the, the Road Time Trials Council um, which was a rival organization to the National Cyclists Union, uh, eventually came to recognize that uh, um, this mass start racing, as they called it, the peloton, um, was uh, forming, was, was becoming really a threat to the form of cycling that they were determined to try to oh, uphold. I see. Sorry, was this sorry, Matt, was this something to do with this what's become a leitmotif of this series, the amateur and professional split? Completely, ab absolutely. And they published, in fact, the RTTC published a, a long statement uh, called the Council's Statement on the Menace of Mass Start Racing on the Highway, uh, where they said exactly that. Um, they, this is a quote from 1951, uh, denouncing mass start racing from the Road Time Trial Council of Britain. And they said, bunched racing is an utterly selfish and irresponsible use of roads. The policy of the council is that all such racing should be stopped. The ringleaders and their associates of the BLRC, the British League of uh, Racing Cyclists, have only financial gain as their motive. Unsuspecting commercial concerns and BLRC road races violate every one of the principles of clean amateurism, authenticity, and regard for public safety. So I think you've got there, in a neat little um, pompous quote, uh, a perfect representation uh, of this attempt to brand uh, team cycling, group cycling competitions as being about professionalism, uh, being against the, quote, amateur spirit of the sport. Uh, and we've seen this again and again, haven't we, in sports from football, rugby football, uh, to cricket uh, and elsewhere. This attempt to stop uh, sport being developed in a way uh, that working people uh, can, can compete in.
um, and to somehow be gatekeepers for, for sports organizations to be political gatekeepers uh, for um, what is perceived or what they perceive as being the amateur status of the sport. So speaking of working people, uh, the Duke of Wellington famously said uh, whenever the railroads, the railroads turned up, he didn't like the idea of trains because uh, it would help the working class, the poor, get around. Is that one of the reasons why these people didn't like the idea of people cycling in groups, young, young working class men turning up looking good and being Marlon Brando, the wild ones of their day? Yeah, yeah, that's right. These are the wild ones. I mean, the Duke of Wellington um, also believed that it was unnatural for a man to travel faster than the speed of a galloping horse, um, which is why he wouldn't get on a train. Um, but he, uh, you know, I think the, the, the advent of cycling clubs takes place very quickly. They spread very quickly uh, by the late 1800s, the 1880s, 1890s. And you can find photographs uh, on the internet and in cycling history books of very natty looking, very well dressed groups of cyclists. And they're not just, they're not, they don't just happen to be standing there. You know, they're dressed in uh, almost a, not quite a uniform, but certainly uh, they've adopted a particular style of dress. So you see young guys, um, you know, Edwardian mustaches, uh, nice natty flat caps. Uh, tweed jackets to keep them warm, scarves, plus fours uh, to keep their uh, trouser legs out of the uh, out of the chain, you know. And there's a particular style associated with this. So, I mean, I think it, it it's um, an example of how a working class sport and style and culture is developing through. Um, the technology of the day, uh, mm. the, the invention of the standard ordinary bicycle uh, with, uh, with gears and a chain, uh, as opposed to the, its predecessor, the, the penny farthing, uh, which allowed you to go faster and farther, faster and further. And you know, the development around that then is uh, clubhouses where cycling clubs need somewhere to sleep when they've you know, cycled 30, 40 miles out into the country you need to have somewhere to rest up um, before you come back. So you start getting uh, associations forming in, in quite a strong way. And that's also developing at the same time as you have the growth of socialist uh, ideas and newspapers such as famously uh, the Clarion, uh, which had its own cycling clubs associated with it and its own clubhouses, Clarion clubhouses associated with it some of which uh, still exist today. And um, that, that's, a, that, that's a really interesting story. And um, a lot of people have written some very interesting research on the Clarion Clubs and other cycling clubs of that era. I mean, there's the great novel, is it by uh, Green, Greenwood uh, from the 1930s, A Love on the Dole, uh, which concerns uh, young, a young working class guy, um, whose love of cycling uh, you know, is, is kind of at the centre of the novel. Uh, but you've also got the whole political tradition, um, which didn't just happen in this country, but also happened uh, notably in Germany, uh, where the socialist, the, the German Social Democratic Party, uh, the SPD, was, was banned, was illegal under 
um, under Bismarck in the 1890s. And so one of the ways in which German socialists would be able to discuss politics was by forming a rambling group or a hiking group or a cycling group and going out into the countryside where you could um, have a meeting and not be overlooked by secret policemen or less likely to be overlooked by a secret policeman. So anyway, yeah, I think um, this is the development of really the modern uh, idea of the motorbike gang, uh, the, wild, the wild ones, um, comes from that period. So you're basically saying that material technological changes like that of the bicycle uh, can provoke profound cultural change too. Are you some sort of Marxist? <laughs> Revolutions per minute, comrade. <laughs> All right, very interesting stuff. Thank you, mate. Let's move on. So again, to understand history, you have to understand cycling. I might actually go and get my bike out of the garage sometime. <laughs> There's plenty of people doing it at the moment, isn't there? It's you know, interesting. I was, I was thinking about this because me and my boy are going to go for a cycle ride uh, along the Thames. And we both hate wearing cycle helmets. I think to make cycling more popular, particularly amongst the working classes, you've got to make it look a little bit more cool. My partner, Leo, uh, Leo Nagar, who's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy, and my martial arts partner, he used to cycle a lot around London. Like me, he stopped because cycling around London can be quite dangerous. And he always felt incredibly uncool in cycling gear. I remember I met him one time in Bethnal Green. And Leo is a big six foot three inch, heavily muscled guy and a good looking guy too. And they said to me, my God, mate, even you can look a bit of a dork in cycling. It seems to affect the guy forever. So what can you do about that, Les? I can make it cool. Can, can I, I think you've, you know, I think you've picked up on a really good point because it is a, it is a, a kind of marmite uh, 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 topic when it comes to uh, helmets. And um, I hate wearing a helmet. I absolutely hate it. Not necessarily because, you know, you, you, you don't look cool in it or anything, just because it, I just feel suffocated in it. Do you know what I mean? I want to feel that freedom of you know, the wind running through the air and all of that kind of gear, like, you know. But kind of, I, you know, um, very kind of pro the idea that what we need to do in Britain is to have, you know, is to deal with the problem at its source. And the problem at its source isn't about providing PPE. Dealing with the problem at its source is about having an integrated transport system, being able to have policies that will allow for um, people to be able to ride safely on dedicated, you know, cycle paths and on, on safe shared roads. And if they were able to do that, then actually, you know, the, the kind of like the uh, uh, the use of a, um, a helmet becomes less kind of, you know, um, um, becomes less and you just look around you go go you go to holland you go to belgium go to you look at kind of like people that are just going around their, 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 their usual business they're not necessarily wearing a helmet because they feel safe they're not you know they're not whacking out at kind of like uh, uh 50k an hour or whatever they're just getting on with their, their normal business 
Um, so, so I do, I do know exactly how you, you you feel. It can be a barrier to in, getting more people to get involved in cycling because the clothes don't look good, or because they, you know, you've got to wear a helmet or something like that. And I am very much an advocate that we need to have kind of like safe kind of like environment for people to be able to feel that they can join in on the, you know, what they look like. You know, at the end of the day, I'm not that kind of like. Uh, uh, fussed about because I think that there's enough type of different types of cycling that people can get involved with that they can kind of wear you know they can be the lycra outs they can be the weekend warriors right the way through to acting about on that kind of shed rusty bike and the pair of jeans and the pair of trainers as long as people are able to get out there and, and enjoy it then that's what that's what I think it, it, it should be about that's been said, however. We can't pass over this without saying that uh, Les himself is a very stylish guy, and uh, he, uh, he, I've seen some of his. I've seen some of his modelling, uh, his modelling shots. As he, uh, I won't mention the company that he's uh, he's riding. No chance. But um, I've seen some of his modelling shots as he uh, comes down the hills of uh, Mallorca uh, in uh, their latest their latest strip, and I can promise you that it is. Uh, it's pretty good gear, and it looks very, very stylish indeed. Um. <laughs> oh, forget that. Just edit, edit that completely, Christian. The, the, the thing, though, is that you know that what we want to be able to do is we want to encourage people to get out and ride a bike, whether or not it's encouraging somebody to stop using the car and get a bike and use the bike because it's a bit healthier for them. Mm-hmm. Or whether or not it's encouraging people who have started the commute, like it, and think that they might want to kind of have a little go and join in the club on a, uh, a on a Sunday uh, club run. That that actually what we've got to do is that we have got to address the fact that we mentioned before that cycling can be a really expensive you know pastime. You know the investment in, um, into a bike and then having a bike. The, the gear and then the reality is is that once you start buying the, 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 the equipment and the clothing you start to realise that the only way that you can really get to the full benefit and, and enjoy cycling is, is to be able to have the right clothes to the right conditions so it means you've got to have a winter jacket you've got to have a rain jacket you want to ride more efficiently you're going to have to get yourself a pair of shoes that you clip in rather than your your Adidas and things like that. So, so kind of like there is there is a, a real sort of debate to be had about kind of who is out there that's going to be able to ensure that good quality kind of like clothes that, in your words, Stu, are cool enough that will you know help people sort of get involved, but but kind of like at the same time are going to be affordable. Now, I know like the cycling work scheme. And things like that has evolved now, and it's not just the bike that you can get; you can buy the associated equipment on it and whatever. But, but actually, you know, there needs to there needs to be a, a kind of like a complete rethink in the, you know in the way, and especially now, especially now when we're talking about kind of like encouraging people to stay healthy. But surely there needs to be a complete rethink in the way in which the kind of like you know uh, uh, socially responsible sports companies are, are actually pitching. The cost of their bikes, their, their their equipment, and and all the accessories that go with it. I mean, it's worth 
uh, saying at this point, you, you've mentioned uh, the importance of uh, an approach towards an integrated public transport system that is cycle friendly. And unfortunately, that's not where we are uh, in this country. I mean, we've got a we've got now in London and Manchester and a number of other cities, this sort of frenetic uh, cycle lane building uh, program that's going ahead. But it's very much about squeezing uh, cycle lanes into the traffic. And it's not an integrated it's not an integrated approach to traffic uh, and traffic management at all. But more more, I think, more importantly, uh, when we talk about integrated transport, the, the bicycle goes fits perfectly with uh, rail travel. Yeah. Uh, you know, putting your bike on the train is what most people want to do. They don't want to ride 30 miles to their workplace. What they want to do is to ride half a mile, a couple of miles to the train station, get a train for 25 miles, and then cycle the last few miles into their workplace. And that has been steadfastly knocked back and made more and more difficult um, by the private train operating companies that have run the industry and run run public passenger transport in this country for the last 25 years. So, for example, you can see that in the design of uh, the latest, most modern trains that are coming onto the British uh, railway system. Uh, that they don't have guards vans, they don't have luggage compartments, they don't have any spaces for bicycles other than some very, very restricted spaces uh, for hanging a bike, which normally is only available if you've booked it in advance. So it is simply not the case that you can use bicycles with our current um, privatised railway system. And this Sorry, is something I, I, that isn't I, a rule that you can't take your bikes onto the train at Russia. Indeed, indeed, that's the case on London Underground. It's the case on many train operating companies that you can only take your bike on a train if you've booked in advance and made a reservation. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. nonsense. Yeah. Um, that can't happen. That can't work. Uh, and it's um, effectively that is freezing cyclists off trains. So this needs to be challenged. It needs to be challenged by cyclists, but by yeah. everyone. And we need to go further than simply challenging it. We need to be looking at the symbiotic relationship that should exist between cycling and rail travel. You know, railway stations, big railway stations need to have hundreds, thousands of cycle parking spaces that are properly maintained, um, not simply where cycles are locked up and left to gather dust for years and years and years. We need to have showers where people can get showered after they've, after they've cycled to work or cycled to the railway station. Uh, like you have in Denmark, for example. I mean, all of these things uh, really need to be developed, I think, by cyclists and by um, other groups that are interested in the use of the bicycle. I'll let Les come in because he's waiting. Sure, yeah. No, some, some really good stuff, some really good stuff there. Um, and I'm going to sort of give you, share a couple of anecdotes if I can as well, just to illustrate some of those points. First, I think it's, in, it, it's important to say that kind of like where I'm based in Manchester, it's the home of British cycling. And yet the streets in Manchester are actually appalling to, to actually try and ride down. Your point before, Alex, about how, you know, cycle lanes are shoehorned into kind of existing kind of like uh, um, traffic systems is absolutely spot on. Um, that the cycle lanes are often inappropriate, that the way in which the kind of right, that, the, that you've got the... Uh, uh, um, camber on the, the roads means that if you're forced into the cycle lane, it's punch a roulette. 
Do you know what I mean? So when you don't go in there, you're getting a rollicking of the driver. But when you do go in there, you're running the risk of continually puncturing because you just can't get anything in in them gullies, in that lane, to actually sweep it clean. And that's where all the debris going. So that's just a, 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 a thing I wanted to mention. I should mention also that Steve Borman, over the years, has been doing a really good job of campaigning around... Um, the fact that Britain is way behind the rest of a, a, a lot of European countries when it comes to uh, transport systems. Um, and I think the kind of, the, you know, when you look at what successful countries like in Denmark, I think you mentioned before, have done, they brought together, didn't they? They brought together town planners. They brought together kind of industry uh, um, uh, experts. They brought cyclists. They brought communities together to actually work out well what is it that's needed and how do we do this what we tend to end up with is it's kind of right that there's a complaint about it we better do something there you go kind of draw a picture of a bicycle on that bit of road and there you go we solve the problem and it clearly isn't um and that's what i would like to see i would like us to see that you know to be able to bring together the various component parts of government in order to be able to to develop that in a, a far more sophisticated and sustainable way than it currently is. Just in terms of an anecdote, just to explain uh, some of the uh, problems that there are about the use of the bike and the train. We're not that far from the Peak District. Love heading out that way into the hills. But quite often, that by the time we've got there, we've, we've kind of, you know, <laughs> we're exhausted just to get there by, by, uh, by bike. And then you've got the, the, to actually deal with the hills. So on a few occasions, we'll do what we call a satellite ride, where we'll jump the train and we'll sort of like start off in the middle of the peaks or wherever it might be. And I was just uh, recently, during the hot spell, one Sunday morning, got up with a pal early morning um, and we went to um, uh, uh, the Peak District to start our ride because we wanted to go a lot further south. and the, um, uh, uh, at the time, it was I think it was about seven o'clock in the morning. There was two other bikes on on the train, and the uh, train manager, as they call them now, said, "Not sure whether or not I can let you in. We only allow three bikes, and that means we, you'll be there'll be four now." And we were like, "Come on, you know, it's seven o'clock in the morning. We're not going to be, you know, uh, interfering with anybody. If anybody does come on, we'll jump off, kind of thing." And he went, "Yeah, go on." But of course. Of course, we, this, where we, we are now. Sorry, we got, we got, sorry, but we got we, we got to we got to I think it was um, Bakewell. I think it might have been. I can't remember where it was. And there was a, a gang of lads. There must have been in their t- teenagers on mountain bikes, wanting to ride the trails. There was about eight or nine of them, and he said, "Absolutely no way! I've already got two or three on here, and just actually see them kids." having to say, you know, no, our day's over now and it's only nine o'clock, was heartbreaking. Why can't there be, as there is in other countries, a dedicated compartment where bikes can go on there that will give people that access to the countryside, to places of beauty, to places of interest that we spoke about earlier on, that kind of like what the people have previously been able to enjoy. And you're right, that kind of like we've been frozen out of that as an option to be able to do because what should be a, a, a nice relationship between the bicycle and the train kind of like is not seen as being a profitable one. 
No, because... Uh, was, uh, sorry, uh, just one last thing about Bakewell there, mate. I was in Bakewell with the wife uh, about six weeks ago, and uh, we couldn't stop because we could not find anywhere to park. And so we went in, spent about half an hour finding the parking space. I got fed up with it and just fucked up. Right, so that's a real issue in somewhere like Bakewell. You're able to go ahead and jump on your bike and get around that, but make the place much nicer to visit. And also we would have spent some more dodge there. So economically, it makes sense for the people of Bakewell too. I mean, we did hit Bakewell on our ride, our Pedal for Progress ride this uh, this summer. Um, oh, wow, yeah. Indeed, the, yeah. First, the, the first leg of it um, was from Manchester to Derby and it went via Bakewell. A particularly lovely bit of, uh, bit of riding actually. And um, we got to Bakewell. We just couldn't believe the amount of people in Bakewell. This was on, uh, you know, I guess the 29th of, uh, of July, the height of the summer. And nobody could go abroad or very few people had gone abroad. So everyone was just going to the Peak District. And it was absolutely swarming. Um, we did manage to find a space for the vans uh, to park. And so we could reconnoiter and uh, so we could uh, rendezvous and have lunch, but um, that was uh, that was a tough call. Yeah, um, going back to what you were saying about the the railway system, of course, the reason why bikes are not welcome on trains is because the economics of uh, privatisation are such that train operating companies are only interested in bums on seats. They're not interested in how you get to the train, how you get from the train to your workplace or wherever you're going to visit your, your, your mum or whatever. So there's an absolute um, courteous and disdainful attitude towards what happens when somebody gets out of the station and needs to travel on their way. Uh, you're, you, you are simply uh, passengers on, on the railway, uh, are simply customers uh, who are utilised um, by uh, ramping up ticket prices to the absolute max that uh, can be sustained. And sure. um, th that, of course, that whole system, the whole economic system has now irretrievably collapsed. And that is why all of the train companies in Britain have now been put under um, special economic measures. Um, and they're being run effectively directly by the Department for Transport as a result of the collapse in footfall, the collapse in passenger uh, traffic uh, since the onset of the pandemic uh, in the beginning of this year. Now that offers that offers an opportunity, I think, and you know, train companies and civil servants, the Department of Transport, are probably quite alive to this. Uh, this offers a possibility for reimagining and repurposing train travel for different uses. And certainly, um, the company that I work for, and I'm a train driver, uh, are openly talking about reorienting their business away from being a primarily commuter-driven railway towards being a leisure railway. And they're going to have to do that because the commuters aren't there and the commuters won't be coming back. Um, the idea of trying to funnel millions and millions of people into London, Manchester, Birmingham uh, every morning and funnel them outward out in the afternoon uh, during the same short period of time is over. Companies are relocating their offices out of city centres. They're often getting people to work from home. And people don't want to travel on public transport during a pandemic as much because they're frightened. So we need to take this opportunity really to make the case for cycle carriages, uh, places where you can hang your bicycle up uh, in safety, uh, have a wash when you get off um, when you get off the train, uh, so that you can uh, you can uh, go to work in some comfort and cleanliness. 
you know, all of these ideas, which are uh, very, very tried, and already practiced in other countries. Uh, we need to have a vehicle, I think, for um, repurposing public transport to make it now much more cycle friendly. And also in London, we got to do something about cycle lanes. You're complaining about Manchester railways. My boy's at Manchester University, and he thinks Manchester the cycle is fucking great compared to London. He cycles there more than he ever has. So if, you might think it's bad there, but he got round. No, he I, got round very nicely in, in, in compared to here. And the air quality better as well. I did. Uh, I did. Uh, I did a, a solo ride from the Morning Star offices to Tolpuddle uh, a few years ago. Um, and um, I was calculating how long it was going to take me. And the challenge was to do it in less than eight hours. And I thought, right, okay. So I worked out, me, me this, I swear to God, the worst part of the journey, and I nearly threw me bike in the teams, was actually navigating my way through London because just the actual sheer congestion of it all, you know, kind of like there was kind of, I, I, I just, couldn't, and I'm, I kind of was brought up in London. So so when I go back, I'm, I'm quite shocked, kind of right, at how kind of, you know, busy the whole bloody place is kind of thing. So, yeah, I understand what your, 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 your lad's saying when he's saying that the Manchester's far better than London. My experience there, didn't, wouldn't want to repeat that too often. Oh, as, we, uh, as we come to a, a sort of, conclusion uh, to this uh, very interesting discussion uh, I'd like to thank you Les uh, for taking the time to talk about this but I'd also like you to talk a bit going back to where we started about sure. what the plans are for Pedal for yeah. Progress in the future because yeah. you and I and other people have talked about this and I know that you've got you're, you're very um, you're, you're a very inventive uh, guy and we've got great plans uh, for future riding and how to involve more people. Uh, so can you tell us anything specifically, uh, anyone who's listening to this podcast, who's interested in taking part in organized cycling uh, activity with Pedal for Progress, uh, you'll get uh, a sense of what's involved from the conversations which you've listened to, which we've just been um, having with Les Doherty. Uh, can you tell us, Les, how they can get involved and what they'd be getting involved in? Sure, um, what are your yeah. plans for the future? And how do you see those uh, developing, particularly in these post-pandemic times? Sure. Um, well, the fact that we were able to organise a, a scheduled uh, edition this year under the circumstances is, uh, is testament to the fact that, kind of like, that we have kind of like fine-tune our organisation over the years. And that if anybody is interested, what they can be assured about is that there is full uh, um, logistic support, that their kit, their you know, supplies are, are catered for in vans and in crew cabs uh, to, um, uh, to uh, take on to the, the, the next destination that there is um, uh, mechanical support, as much as mechanical support that we can provide on the road and being able to deal with kind of like repairs in the field um, is available to people. And that we actually have a little bit of a loose training plan as well, where we kind of acclimatise people who are local to sort of like our area in the northwest uh, to be able to get a feel for what, what's going on. 
Um, people will be surprised to know that it's not just about cycling as well, Al. Uh, that kind of right in, in recent years that what we've done is we've introduced briefings to um, to our uh, our rides. Uh, our rides generally have a theme to them, um, whether or not it's the peace race or whether or not, as it was the other year, it was about kind of like um, no to NATO um, aggression. Um, this year was about kind of like celebrating um, the 90 years of the Morning Star. And so what we do is we'll hold briefings that kind of like give people a bit of a background, a historical context as to why we're riding in, in, in that particular area. And, and these, will, these, will be briefings, these will be briefings that take place at the beginning and during the ride, at lunchtime yeah, sessions? Yeah, they the just evening. kind of punctuate the ride. They punctuate the ride. So we'll do a little briefing in the morning around the actual politics of the ride. That gives then everybody who's involved, even the, the, the people in the vans and the people on the roads, then a kind of point of conversation. So when you're going along, that we're able to share our ideas and our thoughts about that briefing. There's obviously briefings about the actual technical nature of the actual route, but kind of like we also think that it's a learning journey as much as a cycling journey for people as well. So that will be something that people are able to to, to gain from that. This like this next edition is going to be, for example, marking 100 years of the partition of Ireland and that the plan will be to take the vans and the bikes on the ferry over to Belfast and to ride through the heart of the country, uh, hooking up with uh, progressive cyclists and progressive organisations to actually commemorate 100 years of, of partition. Um, the route is still to be finalised. The actual details of all of that uh, uh, won't be coming out. And so I think it's something around about, we usually try and organise it around about the 21st of December. We have a little bit of a social up here in the northwest um, uh, uh, around that time. And that's when I normally launch the, the kind of next edition. So that's what we're going to be doing next year. I suspect that next year is going to be the largest participatory event that we've run. We've already got on the back of last, on the back of this year's uh, uh, edition, we've already got three female members, that are riders that have indicated that they are, uh, are going to take part. We've got another three who've never done it before want to uh, uh, be involved. And I'm kind of suspecting that kind of uh, through discussions with the some of the clarion folk who reached out to us earlier on in the month saying that they'd be interested in joining us as well. So, so I'm confident that we'll be kind of like a much bigger group with more than two vans to accommodate everybody. Um, and that will be done. Ideally, it would have been good if we could have done it at Easter, but, you know, it was just never going to be the case to be able to fit this in and around people's, you know, domestic uh, and, and, and uh, uh uh, uh, um, commitments etc but it'll be in the summer that we'll, we'll be doing that and what I'm also doing if I can just give this a bit of a plug just to give you an idea is that I'm also at the moment looking into kind of like the uh, um, uh, 20 the, the, the 10th edition which will be in 2022 which we're looking to, to kind of retrace our steps uh, of that very first edition that we did in, you know coast to coast and to see whether or not we can do something with that but do it slightly differently 
so that kind of like that we can kind of mark our 10th anniversary because we never thought that it would be kind of like you know eight eight editions in already um so there you go i can tell you about 2023 if you want as well because the dream is the dream is to to get out to north korea and to ride the reunification highway uh, that'll be marking the 75th anniversary of the victory over the United States. So uh, it would be great if we could combine that with a study tour, you know, kind of like, as well as kind of like do that, kind of ride that reunification highway and to uh, uh, to mark the uh, um, victory over uh, America in some way. A lot of organising, a lot of planning, a lot of logistics before we even get there. But it gives you an idea how soon about kind of like where we see ourselves being able to go. We don't try these things, we don't know, do we? Mate, if you do something like that, and also cycling the Ho Chi Minh Trail, I'll probably join you, even if I have to wear that stupid dorky gear. <laughs> Listen, there's always room in the van. If you fancy, if you fancy being part of the logistics core, there's plenty of, there's plenty. And, I, and to be honest with you, I can actually see that happening. That, that kind of like, that as things have evolved, there's, you know, one thing that we've not spoke about, as we've been spoke about, has been the actual byproducts of pedal progress. And one of the real interesting ones has been the kind of artwork that goes with uh, with pedal for progress. Each year, to accompany the launch of the new edition, there'll be some really inspirational artwork that you know, kind of like pays tribute to cycling's heyday and pays tribute to. The, the kind of you know the, the the constructivist movement that kind of like you know that looked to the future and that kind of like was as bold as we tried to be on our on our, on, our, uh, on our bikes. We've also got like little spin-off kind of things where sometimes we think to ourselves, actually, you know what? We went to such and such a place. You mentioned Bochum before, Al. That was on our way to Dortmund to the DKP Press Festival. We ended up going back there not with the bikes, but just as a social to go and watch a football match and to meet up with comrades that we'd met. So then kind of, you know, progress tours has been something that is beginning to, to emerge from that, as well as kind of like progress walks, because Stu, you're right, not everybody is a, a lover of cycling or a lover of sitting in a van and, and being able to experience the places that, that we're able to, um, you know, it, it, it's something that everybody should be able to uh, enjoy. And we want to try and build that, not just the cycling side of things, but the the progress tours, progress art and the progress walks are natural kind of byproducts of that initial project that was about, you know, doing something that was better than a, a kind of morning star bazaar that was going to raise more than a 50 or 60 quid. I think we've been able to do <laughs> we've been able to do okay so far and that's potentially where we can go now. Yeah, and it's really important as well to uh, pay tribute, you know, credit where credit's due and all that, pay tribute to the artist uh, who's behind uh, the fantastic designs um, for Pedal for Progress, uh, Hazel Roberts. And um, I think, you know, people will be able to find her work um, online, but she's, uh, well, I, I don't want to speak... Uh, wrongly, but I think she's inspired by the the great constructivist uh, designs, and you can really see that in her work and the way that she uses those designs with the form of the bicycle 
in the most inventive ways, uh, the spokes, the velocity, the the sense of movement, um, and the and the colours, uh, the use of these you know beautiful uh, st- primary colours. Um, it, it really is a, a tremendous. Um, it, it really adds a tremendous lot to the experience of cycling to have this fantastic artwork black, uh, behind us on our banners uh, when we arrive there to greet us. Um, so I think that is probably about enough for this conversation. Uh, I hope I haven't cut anyone off um, if in their prime. Uh, I think we're all, you know, in our prime here. Um, but I, I want to just sort of thank Les, who, apart from being a very stylish guy, as I mentioned before, uh, and uh, capable of talking the hind legs off a donkey, uh, is also an extremely fine cyclist. And although he's been um, talking here about making cycling a participatory experience uh, for everyone or for everyone who wants to take part in it, uh, Les is also an extremely good cyclist uh, who's involved in some uh, very serious endurance cycling. Um, And uh, hats off to you, Les for the incredible riding that you're doing uh, and which we can follow on your Strava. So <laughs> all, all, the, all the very best. And we look forward to uh, meeting up with you perhaps, uh, to talk about uh, this issue again uh, in the future. But for this session of uh, Redcast, we'd like to say thank you to Pedal for Progress. If you're interested in getting in touch with them, they're on Twitter at pedal for Progress, P-E-D-A-L, numeral four, P-R-O-G-R-E-S-S, uh, and there's a WordPress.com uh, website, Pedal for Progress, WordPress, WordPress.com. Uh, we'll be coming back uh, later in this series with more interesting people talking about their sport and politics. Thanks very much from me and Stuart and Les. Yeah. Thank you.